Hi, Kate. Hi, Daniel. Welcome to Hot and Bothered, a podcast on climate politics in the times of coronavirus. We are hosted by Dissent Magazine, which is the longest-running democratic socialist magazine in the United States, and our producer is Colin Kinneborough. Yeah, so this week we're so excited to be joined by Walid Shahid. He is the communications director of Justice Democrats. He's worked on both the Bernie campaign in 2016, uh, AOC's campaign in 2018. He's a leading voice within the left of the Democratic Party. Um, so here we are uh, recording in Earth Week. Um, there's a lot going on. Kate, I think you've had your eye on kind of crashing oil prices. Yeah. And, you know, for the, <laughs> for the first time in, in, in a long while, I think everybody has their eye on crashing oil prices. Um, the big news is that uh, West Texas Intermediate, which is a type of light sweet crude uh, that's, that's extracted in Texas, um, the price crashed for the first time in history into negative territory. Uh, crude oil futures are trading the negatives. Um, it's really just this kind of un, unprecedented uh, thing that that's happening. Um, and nobody really knows what to do about it. I mean, the, the a piece I just wrote up for the New Republic um, just talks about the fact that we've had, you know, a big conversation in the last year about what good climate policy could look like, but that has um, traditionally not included a super nuanced understanding of, uh, of oil markets. And so I'm, I'm losing my mind a little bit in, in these last, uh, last couple of days in quarantine, kind of trying to follow all this. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, yeah. um, there's a live debate on Twitter right now about whether or not environmental NGOs should be buying up, uh, you know, oil futures or even just buying the oil, um, and then and then not using it or, or, or keeping it in the ground. Um, and of course, this so this raises, you know, a lot of big questions. Um, and I think down the line, you know, and hot and bothered, we'll definitely get into this question of the oil market and what we should do about the oil industry, you know, maybe nationalize it, as I think we each um, support. Um, it, some of the other sort of questions, not quite the oil price crash, but the big the questions of like what to do in this moment in terms of climate politics during this crisis. That is what we're going to talk about um, with Walid um, in just a moment. Um, but first, uh, some kind of important reminders about uh, how you can help us out here at Hot and Bothered. Um, so one thing that you can do that would be super helpful to support this podcast, um, support the production of it, uh, help ensure that our freelance producer, Colin Kinnebra, is able to get paid, is to go over to our Patreon um, and support the production costs. Um, so our website is patreon.com slash hot bothered climate. Again, that's patreon.com slash hot bothered climate. And, you know, if your income is protected, if it's stable, um, we would really appreciate it. And Kate, maybe you can say a word or two about uh, what you'd get from going on to the Patreon. Yeah. So starting at $3 a month, you will get access to a virtual happy hour uh, with Daniel and I and, and maybe some special guests. Our first one uh, is going to be on May 4th. Uh, so may the 4th be with you for all Star Wars fans out there. I am one myself. Um, there will be a quiz of some sort. Daniel is a big fan of structured fun. Um, and there may or may not be some something Star Wars related um, in that, if, if I have my way. And if you pitch in $5 or more a month, you get access to lots of other good stuff, like our book, A Planet to Win, co-authored with Alyssa Battistoni and Theoria Frankus. You get a digital subscription to Descent, other Verso books. So, uh, so sign up now if you can and help keep our podcast free for anyone to listen to. Uh, we, of course, realize this is a time when a lot of people might not be able to pitch in, um, but that doesn't mean you can't support the podcast. Yeah. So, you know, I think for us, the the number one thing we want to do, and that's, you know, part of why we have the Patreon is to, is to make this available free and to just have a really big conversation about how the climate change, you know, the climate emergency intersects with the, with the coronavirus crisis and think about tackling the root causes of these problems. So please tell other people about our podcast, spread the word, rating us um, on the iTunes is super helpful, um, especially for kind of bringing in new listeners. Of course, find us on your, on your podcast platform of choice and, you know, tell your friends about it. Um, please feel free to, to tweet about the show. 
Uh, we're using the hashtag hot bothered climate. Um, and feel free to get in touch. Um, you know, you can reach out to us, um, but you can also send feedback, suggestions for guests, or any other thoughts to hot.bothered.climate at gmail.com. So uh, this week, we're super lucky to have uh, Waleed Shahid join us. And before we get into the interview, um, I think it might be helpful to Kate, just talk over for a minute or two about one of the concepts that is all over this interview, which is this idea of realignment. And um, Kate, why don't you say, you know, tell me what you think this sort of word means. Um, I'll chip in and hopefully with that kind of working definition, we can then dive into the conversation with Waleed. Yeah, there have been, you know, large books written about this, but the way I would define it most simply is that um, we have a two-party system and at periodic times throughout the history of the country, um, those parties have changed in kind of the things that they advocate for and the constituencies that they're made up of. And so the last hundred years is thought to be defined by two major realignments, the first during the New Deal, a second in the 1970s after the oil crisis uh, toward, you know, what's broadly defined as neoliberalism. Uh, And many people have said that we are, you know, today living in a period of realignment. It's something with the candidacy of Bernie Sanders. People have really started to to think a lot about um, and and how to, you know, retake the party and and put it uh, on a kind of progressive and even socialist footing. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I mean, all I would you know add to that is I, I like to think of as it's helpful to think of realignment as involving both political economy and political culture. So it's like the kinds of policies that are implemented and the terms of, of debate. And that, you know, the 30s realignment comes about as a result of a huge crisis of capitalism in the Great Depression. Um, as you were saying, the 1970s is another massive sort of capitalist crisis, uh, of course, in the US, but all around the world. And then in that case, the politics tilt rightward. And as we, I think, experience a huge climate and economic crisis now, and I think you and I have been thinking about this as a kind of quote unquote realignment crisis, which means that we're not, it's not a, an option to kind of go back to the early 2010s or the 2000s, um, but we're going to go probably tilt again further to the right, which is terrifying, or a tilt back um, toward the left. And I guess many of us see the Green New Deal as the way that we tilt um, left, whatever the phrase is, but at least the the substance of that. I think that's right. And uh, the only quick thing I would add is is that uh, past periods of realignment have generally been thought to be defined by the tools of the order, just stop working. They can't meet the crises of the day. And I think this was clear for those of us who think about climate change, that, that the way we've done politics for the last couple of decades is not up for the task. And the coronavirus, I think, has made that all the more clear. So with that, Walid Shahid is the communications director of Justice Democrats. He is a member of the nation's editorial board. He worked for Bernie Sanders in 2016 and AOC in 2018. And uh, we hope you'll enjoy this conversation. Walid Shahid, welcome to Hot and Bothered. How is your quarantine going? Um, my quarantine is pretty, yeah, it's pretty boring. I've become, I've aged like 50 years. I have a bird feeder now, um, where I am keeping track of all the different birds I've seen. Um, last night I discovered that at, at, at some point last week, my bird feeder was going half empty every day. And I was like, wow, there's so many birds coming early in the morning. And I discovered there were two raccoons last night who just eat the whole thing. Um, and that was, that was not great, but yeah. Um, thankfully, you know, my family and my friends have been largely protected from the virus thus far. Um, and I know that's not the case for many people. Um, but you know, one thing I worry about a lot is just my, my dad is still going into his job at work and, um, you know, he's wearing a mask and everything, but he's old and, you know, just wish he didn't have to go to work, but these are the things we're dealing with right now. Yeah, geez. Um, on the on the aging front, I uh, I feel like I've become advanced kind of twenty years in terms of domesticity within the last four weeks. Um, I've you know I'm just cooking so much for for myself and yeah, uh, it, yeah it's. I think we're all going to be 45 at least. All millennials will be 
up a generation. How's the fake meat doing at the grocery stores, Kate? <laughs> I think that's a Daniel question, maybe. Oh, I thought you were the <laughs> fake meat connoisseur. Not nearly as much. Mm. We both uh, indulge. But I would just say I have actually totally regressed to my college cooking lifestyle. I mean, it's like 85% toast, 15% uh, ice cream over here. <laughs> yeah, people's ice cream and alcohol consumption seems to be going up by a lot. Oh, yeah, that too. I, I count that in a separate category. It's parallel. <laughs> Parallel and equivalent, calorically. <laughs> We're all becoming the worst, youngest, and oldest versions of ourselves. Yeah. So uh, for, as for politics, um, so here we are in shutdown and lockdown. It is April of 2020. Bernie Sanders, who Justice Democrats endorsed, uh, has dropped out of the presidential race. He endorsed Joe Biden and is creating these six policy working groups we've heard a little bit about in the past couple weeks. Uh, we're also in this obviously giant crisis sparked by COVID-19 and potentially careening into a recession, probably careening into a recession, if not a depression. And right-wing governments around the world, whether that's Donald Trump or Boris Johnson or whoever else, are embracing these big spending packages and, you know, are, are not asking how to pay for it. So, you know, to paraphrase, I would say it seems a little bit like uh, the old is dying and the new cannot be born. And there are a great variety of morbid symptoms that have appeared. So I, to start off, uh, I'm wondering just how you are thinking about this moment and the work that you're doing in this time of, of monsters. And, you know, how's, how's the last few weeks changed how you're thinking about doing politics in 2020, if it has. Um, is there anything that's you know, surprised you? Kind of where, where are you at? Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, um, many of my colleagues and many of my friends and um, people in my family are really sad about um, Bernie dropping out of the race. And I think there was a time where it looked like, you know, he could win um, after Nevada. And I think the very quick, um, how how politics can change so quickly really caught a lot of people by surprise, including the Bernie campaign. Um, and, you know, our organization is largely set up as, you know, a organization that can help grassroots candidates um, start up their campaigns um, and, run at, you know, have the resources they need and infrastructure they need to run congressional campaigns. So there was um, never a whole lot we were going to end up doing for the presidential race. Um, but, you know, it still is a bummer. And, you know, a lot of our energy in the presidential race went into um, trying to make the case against um, Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg. And, um Joe Biden is now the nominee and I, you know, I have no clue what the next six months or ne next, you know, next administration will look like. But um, one thing, one thing I'm just thinking about is just like how much of politics is about the time you're living in and how, how you recognize what time you're living in and how you prepare for that time. Um, so all the stuff happening with the coronavirus is, um, related to like uh, Bernie Sanders and other progressives laying the groundwork for a different vision of our democracy and our economy could be run. And all that work that went into um, making the case for those policies, making that, making the case for that agenda um, wasn't for not, it actually matters a lot now because we are living in even more of a crisis than um, we were just six months ago or four years ago. And so um, I am cautiously optimistic about some of the direction of Democratic Party politics um, because of the ways things are changing. But um, I don't want to like, uh, you know, a loss is a loss and we should reflect on that loss. And um, Bernie's loss is not because of, you know, I, I want to make the case to my um, leftist friends that Bernie's, Bernie's loss is not necessarily just a some sort of moderate conspiracy against him but that we should also reflect on um the ways that um 
the ways that the campaign could have um the ways that the ways that the campaign was attacked and were there decisions that could have been made differently um i'm sure everyone you know people have been reading the postmortems but um even inside the campaign people have different ideas for some of those things and um but yeah i i think the party has shaped shifted a lot and i think like a lot of the ideas that are floating around are ones that come from the progressive movement and the progressive movement is dominating the ideas conversation in the democratic party which was not the case five years ago. Yeah. So let, let, let me pick up on that. Um, I think you're right that we're winning the ideological debate. Um, I actually don't think there's really that much question um, about that. And we'll keep talking about the ideas and the messaging throughout, but let's pause for a moment and dig in, I think, on the method. Um, the Sanders campaign didn't just have different ideas from the Biden campaign, but it had a, a theory of, of political victory, which pivoted to a pretty significant degree on grassroots mobilization, um, a very large field game that would bring in new voters, uh, and that this kind of energetic approach would really restructure the electorate um, and create a kind of unstoppable um, political machine. So um, obviously that didn't entirely pan out. Um, and I want to get your take on lessons from the the field operation. Um, and I think we'll want to break this up into a couple of pieces because for Justice Democrats, I think field game is really important, but it's obviously very different to say door knocking is very important in a low turnout, geographically restricted primary, like a congressional district, for instance, where AOC won. Um, it's a different story in a national election or maybe a statewide election. So I guess I'm curious, like, how are you thinking about field in the wake of Bernie's defeat? And to start off, like, what do you think the takeaways are in the years ahead when we talk about other big geographically large primaries, whether it's like, you know, Senate, Senate primaries, governor primaries, and of course, the next, you know, presidential primary down the line. What's your kind of takeaway from the field experience and its results of the Bernie campaign? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things um, that I learned this year was that field matters a lot, a lot, a lot more in down ballot races where voters don't have that much information about the candidates. Um than it might even on a presidential level, because um, on the pres- because of the way the media coverage is set up, most voters have some idea of what they think about the candidate before you've even come to their door because of the media coverage centering on the presidential race. And so um, field is helpful in the margins, especially helpful in those caucus states that Bernie did well in. Um, but there is so much that is outside the control of a field operation um, because of how much people's voters' perceptions of a candidate is shaped by the media. And, you know, you have to remark on you had an entire um, mainstream media and particularly um, one cable television station that was dedicated to uh, taking a very negative approach to Senator Sanders. And that obviously harmed his campaign. Um, On down-ballot races, because voters don't actually know that much about their member of Congress or the challenger, having someone contact you at the door or over a phone bank or over a text bank is hugely significant and can really make a huge difference. So in Jessica Cisneros' race, um, for example, we lost by about 2,700 votes, very, very small margin. And if we had just contacted a few more voters earlier on, um, we probably would have won. Um, and the, one of the reasons we lost was because so many people voted before uh, the volunteer energy really poured in um, from our organization, from the Sunrise Movement, and from others. Um, and voters had cast their, you know, voters were able to, through early voting and mail-in voting, cast their ballot before they actually heard from volunteers. And so one thing that I'm sitting with after the fact is that, you know, for our upcoming primary races, particularly the one in New York, um, where Jamal Bowman, a middle, middle school principal from the Bronx, is taking on uh, Elliot Engel, the 30-plus year incumbent who is the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, um, getting on the phones, which, you know, because of the virus, we're only doing phone banking and text banking, is super important because it's not like, you know, voters know a lot more about Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders than they know about Jamal Bowman and Elliot Engel. Um, So having people contact voters about the differences between the candidates, 
a, a campaign is able to control the narrative a lot more um, than you're able to with like MSNBC, the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, like driving a narrative into people's living rooms. The last thing I'd say is like in the Iowa caucuses in particular, you know, I do want to uplift the work that the Sanders campaign and in, and in, and the Nevada caucuses. Um, I wanted to uplift the work that the Sanders campaign did do on constituency outreach to um, Muslim communities, Latino communities, immigrant communities, and that really provided a lot of the margin of victory um, in those states. And lots of campaigns didn't invest that level of, you know, detail or um, commitment to those, you know, usually low turnout voters. And so that level of constituency organizing made a big difference in those two states. Um, but I guess, you know, to sum up my bigger point is that field matters a, a lot more when there's when voters have less information about the candidates. So if, if folks don't know, well, your Twitter handle right now is, uh, I believe, ideas that are lying around. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I receive DMs telling me to change it because people find it annoying. Uh, well, you know, I'm keeping it for all you listeners out there who have DM'd Waleed in <laughs> infuriated uh, about his Twitter handle. Uh, sorry, sorry to break the news. Um, so, you know, I, I, you, you can talk a little bit about this too, if you want, but that is a reference to a quote from Milton Friedman's capitalism and freedom, um, that friend of the pod, Naomi Klein, uh, pointed to in a recent weeks in a video for The Intercept. And of course, she's written about in The Shock Doctrine, uh, basically this idea that, uh, you know, when there is a crisis, in his words, actual perceived, um, that is the moment when real change can happen. Um, and so ideas that are sort of out there in, in the ecosystem are the ones that can get picked up. Um, you know, you've, you've also written a bit uh, for The Nation and elsewhere about the history of the radical Republicans. And posited the squad, AOC, Ayanna Presley, um, Rashida Tlaib, and Alan Omar as a kind of parallel to that. Um, and also, more recently, have you know talked about uh, Podemos and its influence over uh, its coalition government with uh, the Socialist Workers Party in in Spain, uh, more kind of center left party where Podemos is is more sort of left, comes out of social movements. Uh, Etc. So, you know, we've just been through this primary where there's been a lot of uh, bold ideas on the on the table, and uh, obviously getting people elected with a big piece of of what the right strategy has been uh, to to getting its its ideas that were lying around sort of into into law and codified. Um, but it also mounted this massive effort to basically organize corporations and very wealthy people into uh, funding these kind of kooky academics, magazines like the National Review, um, and, and, and people who would sort of do the work of, of getting these ideas both kind of into the public, but also, you know, the ear of uh, policymakers, sort of people who had their fingers a little closer to the trigger. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if you could say, you know, where does Justice Democrats see itself in a kind of broader realignment ecosystem? Um, and, and what all needs to be part of that, um, that, you know, either is happening or isn't happening right now? And, and where, what do you see as the biggest needs? Yeah, great question. I mean, the, the major, major part of the organization is to recruit and support um, primary challengers who are running against incumbent Democrats. And the reason we do that is because of a strategy and a theory based on what the Tea Party was able to do in um, the Obama years, where, in you know, in many ways the strategy is limited, and in other ways it's uh, very, you know, it can make a huge difference. And the theory is basically, if you are able to unseat a sitting Democrat, you are able to speak about what Democrats should stand for, because you won the nomination against someone who previously claimed to be able to speak on behalf of the party. And I think AOC's victory um, proved some of that hypothesis and theory correct um, for progressives and people on the left. And so one role we play in the ecosystem is to um, use primary challenges as one terrain of conf political conflict that is very, very easy to explain to 
um, the media, to voters, and really dramatizes some of the core conflicts within the Democratic Party, particularly around issues like um, class and also things around race and gender. And um, the um, you know the, our tagline as an organization is a Democratic Party that works for voters, not corporate donors. And so almost always the people we're running in running against take massive amounts of money from large corporations, lobbyists, um, Wall Street, the fossil fuel industry, health insurance companies, arms manufacturers. And, you know, a big part of our message is why do we have a party where it's okay to take money from these people? And does that money influence the party's policy direction on those things? And the primary becomes a really great site of conflict and contest around these ideas, around ideology. And um, yeah, it can speak to a lot of people. Um, Separate from the primaries, we also do work um, particularly on the communications front to um, work with other groups like the Sunrise Movement and others to um, make sure that, you know, main, mainstream reporters like know about um, some of the some of the outside organizing work that's happening that are inside champions like the squad support. So the Green New Deal is a good fight for that where. You know, I wouldn't say the reason AOC beat Joe Crowley was because of her climate policy, but the fact that she afterwards decided to make the Green New Deal her big policy priority um, and, you know, give the Sunrise Movement and many others a window to do more organizing around that. Um, All that stuff doesn't happen because of a sit-in. It happens because there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes to put some of those pieces together, talk to reporters, talk to producers, talk to editorial boards to cover this exciting story um, about, you know, this new direction that the party is heading in on, on a core issue. Um, And then um, a lot of my work is around that stuff. And the, you know, the historic analogy here, which is not, not a perfect one. And I'm not a historian and um, you know, the, I, I think one of the interesting places is that, um, you know, throughout American history, there have always been in major moments of realignment, a caucus or network of um, legislators and outside political actors and social movements who are kind of all moving toward a shared horizon. And there might be disagreements within that network. There might be a different role that legislators play from outside institutions, but they generally have a shared horizon and they're moving toward it. And a lot of what, you know, justice Democrats is doing is trying to cohere that work. And so, um, pretty soon, and I talked about this in my, um, interview with dissent is, um, right now, a lot of the work we're doing is shaping the, shaping the political terrain. Um, when there's a democratic administration for the first time, there'll be, uh, you know, if and when there's a democratic administration, I hope there is one, um, there'll be real real strategic conversations about where does the conversations about the Green New Deal and Medicare for All, um, where does the rubber meet the road in terms of actual legislation and where votes are going to be happening? And what are the compromises that some of the um, organizations and elected officials and social movements need to take a, take part of that are very normal in multi-party proportional representation systems where Parties campaign on one thing, and then they enter government and compromise on certain things in order to pass laws. Um, That's what's happening in Spain now. That's what's happened in Portugal and um, a series of municipalities um, where left parties are governing in coalition with center left parties. Um, That is all stuff that is going to be very alive if Joe Biden is president on how much can we push um, and where do our votes come in as a point of leverage and as a point of getting certain policies across the finish line. And so. I just want to close by saying that is a that is a great mark of the of the growing maturity of the progressive left in the country that we're even talking about what our votes in Congress will mean. Um, so you know it's much different than it might have been ten years ago or even you know in two thousand nine with a very small limited progressive caucus that had nowhere near the platform. You know Dennis Kucinich, Keith Ellison, Anthony Weiner, some of the leaders of the progressive caucus in two thousand nine had had nowhere near the platform of members of the squad and even Pramil Jayapal and Ro Khanna do today. I think I had blocked out that Anthony Weiner was a member of the Progressive Caucus uh, somewhere, <laughs> somewhere that got Big blocked. champion of the public option. 
Oh my god, so much has changed in the last decade. You've replaced Anthony Weiner with AOC. Progress? <laughs> I call it progress. <laughs> oh god. Um, I think that's the first time Anthony Weiner has mentioned on this podcast. So thank you, Walid. Um, yeah, so you know, a lot has changed, um, certainly in the last decade. But but I mean, something that's stood out to me um, just from watching what's been happening the last couple of weeks is also, you know, how much hasn't. I mean, and I'm thinking, you know, just to, to kind of put the nail on the head um, it, about what within the Democratic Party specifically needs to change. And I think, you know, watching uh, congressional Democratic leadership kind of navigate the question about the stimulus has been to my mind, pretty disappointing uh, in, in, in that, you know, obviously they're not in any kind of ideal negotiating position, um, but also, you know, are not really pushing for anything. Um, I, th- I think a lot of the agenda that has been talked about through the presidential primary, these sort of big, bald, progressive ideas that in many ways all are winning the day and are popular with voters, um, are not uh, are not really fighting their their way um, into into the conversation about what a recovery could look like, what a stimulus could look like, at least, you know, as of yet from the people who are in rooms with Steve Mnuchin in the White House. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if, if you, you know, how, how you've been seeing that and seeing the negotiations around the stimulus has kind of shaped how you're thinking about what, what needs to change within the Democratic Party, within the Democratic Party and, and how, you know, you think about that, that project, what has worked and, and what has not. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. And there are a lot of young people and um, progressives who are um, really inspired by Bernie Sanders campaign in 2020 and are um, not only inspired, but they also put a lot of their, put a lot of their eggs in that basket and I think it was kind of a um, a theory of social change that was like skipping over a lot of the institutional work that might need to go into a left social democratic realignment um, where one thing regarding your question is that, you know, just yesterday was the first time that the progressive caucus really tried to get some teeth around some demands they want to make of the next stimulus. And we don't yet have a fully coordinated and strategic and muscular progressive caucus that is going to um, use their leverage in the house to get major concessions. I will say the progressive caucus is much more improved under the leadership of representative Jayapal and Mark Pocan this year. And, um, than it has been in previous years, but there's still a lot of work to go in order to just cohere and unite and coordinate with elected officials and get them on the same page to act more like a robust caucus in the same way the Freedom Caucus has done. Um, And that, you know, organizations like ourselves and and others like Indivisible are working on, you know, trying to work with the caucus and our allied legislators in Congress much more for a more robust response, but um, it's not it's not something that people have um, the muscle memory of doing yet, and um, it's also the numbers of people who want to go out on a limb and speak out against leadership or work on the inside to push leadership um, are not that large. Um, you basically have. Um, you know, the people who were on that call yesterday for the Put People First campaign, and you have Senator Warren and Senator Sanders and Senator Markey and um, a couple others. And it's not, you know, the, the numbers just aren't there to fully shape how the Democrats in Congress act. So I think you're right that we shouldn't get too cocky about how we're like winning the ideological war when, you know, we are still in these very you know, real moments of legislative negotiation, we still have a lot of work to do, although it has improved in the past two years. Um, I think also, you know, Matt Iglesias at Vox at this point once on his podcast, which I think is absolutely true, that there are a series of 
that that the typical member of the Democratic Party in Congress sees themselves as a negotiator between what the progressive left wants and what moderate Republicans want, meaning they have no real ideological bearings or real strong beliefs other than that they are, um, you know, triangulators between the progressive left and moderate Republicans. Um, And that can lead itself sometimes to advantageous territory for progressives because we are the ones injecting ideas into the conversation. Um, But it's also problematic because your leadership has no sense of what historical moment we're in, what the time is, or, um, you know, how to have a vision that leads you through a crisis and instead is, you know, continuing to just mm, think, act like everything is normal and that, uh, and it's fine. So, um, I do, there are lessons learned from the previous uh, stimulus packages and the ways that Democrats got kind of rolled on the um, the slush fund that Mnuchin got. And I think you'll see more muscular and robust responses going forward. Um, but yeah, we are nowhere near the level of power we need. Um, and you know, the biggest indicator of that is how many seats do we have in Congress? And we don't have that many seats. Um and so, yeah, I just, I think we, there's just a lot more work to do to build the institutions and the infrastructure to um, shape the party. And that, that work will take time. So this is supposed to be the decade of the Green New Deal. Um, if we're going to get a Green New Deal, we need A, to realign around a more progressive governing majority, you know, and that obviously involves social movements and also legislators like AOC. And then B, we need to make green investment a central piece of that new coalition and the messaging. And yet right now, I think we're in a crisis where there's actually a lot of disagreement about whether to even talk about climate right now. Um, So I'm curious, like, what do you make of how the Green New Deal was used as a cudgel by Republicans in the last round of stimulus debate, even when nothing to do with the Green New Deal was on the table except for essentially airline offsets? And I mean, should we just abandon the phrase, like just abandon it to the dogs but keep advocating the substance? Should we in this like realignment crisis even abandon the substance to fight for another day? Like how do we, um, how do you see the role of kind of the Green New Deal or like progressive left green investment more broadly in this, um, in this crisis and how we should be talking and organizing around it? Yeah, I think it's a open discussion. I don't know if I have clear answers on it, but I can say some of the considerations that go into answering those questions where, um, you know, on the airline thing that was included in Pelosi's um, package, that was not something that, you know, was really being strongly pushed by um, Green New Deal activists as like, this is the number one thing we want in um, the stimulus package. And um, at the same time, it was something positive. And the I know that strategic considerations and debate that went into some of that is like, do do Green New Dealers want to die on this hill because it was, or and make this a core part of our demand because you know Pelosi included it and now Republicans are attacking it and should we should we make this one of our own make this one of our things, um, a demand and key part of our program, and there were other conversations where like people felt some people I talked to felt like the airline making the airline. Um, emission standards were seemed elitist and out of touch and that the actual part of the Green New Deal that was most um, effective was that it was a core message around jobs and not around emissions and offsets. And so, you know, that I don't think that debate ever got resolved. I think what I what I took away from that is that, look, Republicans took Republicans tried to pick out what they believed was the most vulnerable part of the Democratic proposal. And when they picked out that thing, they chose the Green New Deal and the airline emissions. And Republican senators and Republican members of the House went on the floor, went on went on Fox News and put out press releases and put out tweets, um, all saying that Nancy Pelosi was trying to sneak in Bernie Sanders and AOC's Green New Deal into the coronavirus stimulus rescue. And um there was no real uh, response from either Democrats or progressives on that because of some of the things I've I've mentioned here. Um, and the thing that I took away from that was that this is going to be this conflict and this fight is going to be the fight 
for the next year, next two years, next 10 years, the same thing will happen over many other <laughs> pieces of legislation and many other bills where um, there will be uh, this, it'll, it'll look exactly the same way where um, de- Republicans will try to um, paint, paint climate initiatives and paint, paint the Green New Deal as um, impractical, unnecessary, not the right time, not what de- el- elitist, um, and not speaking to bread and butter concerns that, um, quote, ordinary Americans, unquote, want, and then using AOC and Bernie Sanders as the, as the like, um, leaders behind that movement. And in some ways, it, you know, the, the historic analogy there is like, um, there, I, I, you know, I, I still think there's this way there's, I guess there's this way in which like, um, the green and Ed, Ed Markey will say this a lot. He's, he says the re the reason why, um, his climate bill Waxman Markey didn't pass was because there was no energy to its left and there was no social movement pressure behind it or a constituency of organized people fighting for Waxman Markey. The difference he says now is that all the, all three of those things are true is that there's energy on the left for climate, for bold climate action. There is an organized constituency of particularly young people who is, this is their primary issue. And that, um, you know, there is social movement organizations and institutions behind this stuff. Um, that said, like, you know, um, do I think the thing that Joe Biden will enact will necessarily be called the Green New Deal if he passes climate legislation? I have no clue um, because this is the this is the di- this is the dynamic we're in where we live in polarized times. I'm in some conversations with people where people are like, well, maybe we should abandon the Green New Deal because it's associated with the far left. It's associated with AOC. People think of it as this young people activist thing and not something that speaks to like, you know, older Americans who who are not that tuned into politics and don't like activism and that kind of stuff. And my point is basically the same point that David Roberts has made many times, which is that any climate legislation, regardless of what it's called, will be utterly destroyed by Breitbart and Republicans and Fox News. And it doesn't matter what we call it. Um, So we should just stick with the thing that we've already started building a movement around. And if, you know, Cap and Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi want to start another thing, it will equally be destroyed by the same right wing political and media infrastructure that is trying to come after AOC and the Green New Deal. Um, But it's better that we have that Green New Deal in a world that we know already where some actors in the Democratic Party establishment will already be trying to distance themselves in. We shouldn't do the work for them to do that. I guess I don't know if that made sense, but that's that's kind of my take. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I mean, I, I'm going to turn it over to Kate, but let me just say quickly, I, I am all in on the camp of lead with jobs, lead with green investment and workers and communities. And Republicans will always mischaracterize this stuff or some many will, but um, making doing every possible thing so that the conversation pivots on investments and workers and communities, that would be my priority um, and not to get stuck talking about offsets on cable news. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree wholeheartedly with that. And I, I've been thinking a lot about about 2009 um, in, in the last couple of weeks. I mean, the last recession, but also um, the last time uh, Democrats tried to pass climate policy. And I think, you know, it's, I think we, we all stand and Marky on this on this podcast. Um, but what I would add, you know, to that is, is, is you articulated is that the substance of, of a Green New Deal is also really different than, than Waxman Markey and that we were, you know, like, there were millions of people out of work. Uh, we were in, you know, the worst recession at that point since the Great Depression. And the Democrats uh, were trying to pass a policy which was, you know, more complicated uh, and, and and I think had, you know, better aspects than I think it's given credit for, um, but was branded really effectively as uh, rising your gas prices uh, when gas prices were relatively high. Um, and they, you know, just sort of crazy stuff about them, like handing uh, the financial sector the keys to design this, like, carbon market worth billions of dollars. Um, so, you know, I, I have... I, I hope that you know we, we are not <laughs> fully trying to go back to the to that, um, and and uh, I you know I'm, I'm a bit hopeful that we've we've progressed hopefully 
um, beyond that. But I think, you know, the point stands, right? And that like we um, can have a, a very different conversation about what uh, what climate policy can look like uh, in the aftermath of a recession, in the midst of a recession. Um, and I, I, I have, you know, just heard a lot of uh, sort of ambivalence about being uh, sort of forthright about the kind of world we want to build uh, while, you know, so many people are suffering while we're dealing with this, you know, massive, massive crisis. Um, and, and there is this real and very understandable urge to focus on the things and the types of policies that um, will really, you know, help people in the here and now. So in the recovery conversation, uh, kind of cash transfers to people right now uh, so that they don't have to, you know, they don't, aren't left not being able to pay the rent or buy food, um, these sorts of like immediate, immediate concerns. And, you know, we, you got into this a little bit in the last question, but is it just, is now just too soon to be talking about green jobs or something like a green WPA uh, or about, you know, the kind of recovery the progressive movement wants? I'm wondering, you know, how you're thinking about the timing of, of what this looks like, um, particularly, you know, if it sounds like, um, I mean, certainly the thing Dan- Daniel and I uh, are excited about and have written about um, is to have this, you know, really kind of jobs forward approach, um, which also is not, you know, I think it looks a lot different than uh, the kind of Van Jones plan in 2009. Um, but, you know, pushing that, pushing that mm-hmm. forward. Um, so, yeah, I mean, how, how do you think about the timing? Yeah, uh, I think that this is where the conversation is going to head regardless in terms of what it will look like to emerge out of a public health crisis and an economic crisis where millions of people are unemployed and entire sectors in, of the economy and industries have to be revitalized. And it's not just, you know, me and, uh, you know, leftist activists on Twitter who say that Joe Biden said that in his conversation with, um, you know, the part of his millennial outreach, he kind of butchered it in his own Joe Biden way. But a few weeks ago, he said, my green deal will address the level of unemployment we're seeing in, in terms of the work that we have to do to put people back to work. And so, you know, I'm sure Joe Biden got an earful from Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer of saying that because uh, Pelosi and Schumer seem to not want to talk about green stimulus or um, green investment right now openly. Um, and I know that Joe Biden actually was entirely uh, attacked by the right-wing infrastructure in the media and the right-wing infrastructure in Washington, D.C. when he made those comments. And so um, one of the interesting things happening here is that for many years, and particularly in the past year, we've been, progressives have been laying the groundwork to think about um, transforming our economy to be more equitable and putting people to work on things that can create wealth for communities across the country that have been locked out of um, generational wealth and putting people (laughs) into work on um, in high paying sectors where um, they're not, people are not going to be stuck in low wage industries. Um, And so I definitely think that it's time to um, one, especially be laying the groundwork for a major political fight, because I don't think that we will get a green stimulus or green investment under Donald Trump. I think, in fact, we're, you know, with the way the oil industry went, I think we're going to see something very different under the Trump administration that is extremely harmful to our project. But um, I think, you know, if, if, but Joe Biden wins in November, and I hope he does, um, this will be the fight um, in the first, uh, six months of the administration is what the jobs program and what the investment is going to look like. And um, I think it will be, I think there is increasing consensus within the democratic party leadership even, um, and even leading figures in the think tank infrastructure, like John Podesta, who think that this is where um, there should be, there should be climate legislation as the number one priority for a climate and jobs um, legislation as the number one priority for the next administration. Um, I think uh, my hunch is that the conversation will be what should that look like, not whether it should happen. And I guess as much as we can be laying the groundwork uh, for that now under Trump, um, 
the better it will be in come November and come January. Thanks. Yeah, that's that's certainly um, I hope that's that's how things go. And it gives me a little optimism to hear you, you put it that way. Um, to circle back to what you said kind of earlier at the beginning of the conversation, Justice Democrats, the left of the party is one group within the party. Right. Um, and so you're not obviously running the, the transition, uh, unfortunately. Um, what do you see as the core task of the left in the lead up to November um, and perhaps after, like over the next few months, what do you hope the Justice Democrats candidates, the Justice Democrats kind of project is going to push as its own sort of distinctive contribution to this broader debate over how to respond to and, and get out of this crisis? I think one one thing in the immediate next month is that progressives should be putting forward ideas for certain policy and personnel commitments that Joe Biden could make to earn the trust of um, progressives and young people and Latino voters who didn't support him in the primary, and that um, that is a real place where we can win some concessions. But I say concessions because, you know, Bernie Sanders and progressives lost the election, so we're not going to win everything. So there are certain places where we can have our influence met, knowing full well what the contradictions are of um, the Democratic Party and the Joe Biden administration. But I think that work can still be done to push Biden um, on certain things, um, such as his climate policy, his immigration policy, um, people he should be appointing to his campaign and his transition team, people he should pledge not to be appointing, all that campaign work, um, whether is is very important to get, get heard on that stuff. Um, I do think, you know, it is imperative for anyone who cares about the Green New Deal and climate legislation to ensure that Donald Trump does not win re-election. And I think it will be a much harder election um, than, uh, than we think. And especially now that the candidate that most of us thought would have an easier time beating Donald Trump is not the nominee. I think it might be harder. Um, and so I would, um, I think, you know, getting those concessions is the first step, um, to make the nominee a better nominee and a more accountable nominee, um, participating in the coalition that defeats Donald Trump in some way is important. And then, you know, immediately holding the feet to the fire of Biden when he is, you know, moving away from our agenda and especially setting the agenda for the first hundred days of his administration or all, all work we can be doing. And then, you know, last thing I would say is just, um, it is really, really, really important to build a, a network or a caucus of like-minded legislators, um, who will hold the next administration accountable. And we've already seen the work that the squad and Representative Jayapal, Representative Khanna have been able to do to um, shape the Democratic Party in significant ways, but, you know, they need a lot more allies in Congress. And so, um, you know, two major primaries Justice Democrats has coming up is Jamal Bowman in June. Um, People will start voting very soon. So the election is, you know, May is when the election is actually happening um, in the Bronx and Westchester. And then um, we have a candidate in Western Massachusetts who is a mayor of Holyoke, Massachusetts, who is challenging Richie Neal, who is the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. So um, is in charge of the ways that a lot of appropriations and budgets and um, money is money is spent. Um, and he is one of the most conservative corporate Democrats in the caucus receives the most amount of money from corporate PACs in the entire caucus. And um, if you want to see a more progressive party, we need to be able to show that we can unseat some of these people again, and that it's not just a fluke from AOC beating Crowley two years ago. It seems like if if Biden gets into office, which I hope he does, and I, I agree, seems like it will be a tough fight. Um, this will be the first time that uh, there's a not the first time, but certainly in recent memory, that there is this kind of new relationship between movement and party um, that really seems like it's come into prominence in the U.S. really since 2016 and and, and Bernie's run then. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how you think that can continue to evolve uh, with, with Biden in office. Um, certainly, you know, my memory of the Obama era um, was a really kind of uh, a movement that was committed to, you know, really pushing 
the administration, um, but had a little bit less nuanced uh, take, I think, than exists now about the relationship between social movements and people in Congress who um, can kind of push and, and sort of what, um, you know, the left really owning its power uh, can can look like. So I'm, I'm wondering what you see as the future of that kind of dynamic, um, which you, you started to mention with the Progressive Caucus, but kind of how that can continue to evolve in an administration that, you know, is going to need to be pushed on, on a lot of things. Yeah, I think social movement pressure is critical. And in the Obama presidency, we saw a wave of social movements like the Dreamers and Occupy and Black Lives Matter, the Fight for 15, um, many other uh, movements that were um, critical in um either stopping the Obama administration from doing something, changing the conversation, or winning an executive action. Um, so you saw all three of those things as uh, things that happened from those social movements. Um, I think there is increasingly um, much more synergy and relationship between um, social movement forces and networks and elected officials in the progressive caucus, which I think is very useful because um, that is a place where social movements can also have a lot of pressure. It's not just on Joe Biden, it's on some of our allies sometimes in helping shape what they do and how they feel, you know, they can point to, um, they can point to a reason they're going to vote no on something that um, the Democratic Party leadership is doing is because of pressure they're getting from their constituencies and the districts and movements they're accountable to. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I saw in 20, in 2019 was just that we just didn't have enough votes who were willing to basically say to Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, like, we are going to tank this bill if we don't get X, Y, and Z. And it's actually the moderates in the Democratic Party, uh, people like Henry Cuellar, who do that the most is say, I'm going to lead the blue dogs to vote with Republicans against this bill unless we get certain carve outs for our benefactors. Um, and so that's one thing that I think people should be thinking about is how to um, put pressure and work with our allies even on feeling like they can do some of that stuff because it's very scary when you feel like you're doing it alone and you don't know how many numbers you have. Um, I also think like, look, are the place of progressives, the place of the Bernie movement, the place of the left, the place of young people in the Democratic Party is rife with contradictions. But I think it's increasingly becoming clear that we're both inside and outside the Democratic Party and that we're getting signals from people like Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer that um, we are a constituency within the Democratic Party as much, maybe not as much, but um, in some, some ways that the party thinks about um, other constituencies in the Democratic Party, whether it's labor, whether it's, um, you know, fighting for immigrant rights, whether it's fighting for choice. We are also young people, social Democrats, progressives, whatever word you want to use to describe it, are also becoming somewhat of a constituency in the Democratic Party. And that is just full of uh, contradictions that we have to navigate. And um, it's um, on the one hand, I think it's very good that um, the party sees us that way. On the other hand, um, it is problematic in a lot of other ways where um, we, I guess, I guess the, we have to be able to figure out how to maneuver within a party where we're not the dominant or the only voice and that sometimes our votes are needed to support something and sometimes our votes are needed to tank something. And those are all choices that you know, we started off this conversation with you guys mentioning the Podemos party in Spain that is now the junior party um, and, go, and co sorry, the junior coalition partner in coalition with the center left party. Um, and the vice president of Spain, one of the vice presidents of Spain right now is Pablo Iglesias, the leader of that party. Um, those parties are asked all the time what compromises they can live with and what compromises they can't live with, with their partners and their coalition. And those are questions I think that will dominate like the next year of the left and particularly our, our allies in Congress. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, again, I think it's a sign of maturity. I think it's a sign of development, but you know, I think it's good for people to watch with cautious eyes of where this all leads. Brilliant. Well, Walid, thank you so much. Uh, I think the note of growing into our power, recognizing our power, using our power, um, 
is just the, the perfect note to end on. Um, so thanks for so much for coming on to, uh, to Hot and Bothered. Thank you so much for having me. That was Waleed Shaheed, the Communications Director of Justice Democrats. So you've been listening to Hot and Bothered, a podcast on climate politics in the time of coronavirus. That's it for this episode. But if you like what you've been hearing, please help us spread the word. Um, rate us, review us on iTunes, uh, talk about us on the internet, uh, use the hashtag on Twitter, hashtag hot bothered climate. Uh, kind of get that going on, on Instagram uh, as well. And we are out every Thursday um, for the foreseeable future, certainly during the quarantine every single week coming out on Thursdays. And if you're able to uh, pitch in to help cover the costs of our production, you can do that, like we said, at patreon.com slash hot bothered climate. Once again, that's patreon.com slash hot bothered climate. And let me just thank, uh, really deeply thank those of you who've already come on to our Patreon. We're super grateful. Really excited to see you in the happy hour and just feeling really good about already having that community of supporters out there uh, helping to make this podcast possible. So thanks so much for your support, for listening, and stay hot. Stay bothered. And stay inside. <laughs>